Well, we'll dismiss our children to children's ministry, and you can be seated. So, I'm going to give you a window into my soul, not that you asked, but one of the most important values in my life is summed up in a saying, to kill two birds with one stone. I am obsessed with two-birding. My wife, this is, this is probably, you know, the longer you're married, these differences, they really, they really have to be navigated. They're cute at the beginning, but 20-plus but years in, they're not as cute as they once were. And I am obsessed with lining things up in a way where I accomplish multiple outcomes with a single action. I love, and so, so I'll, I'm the George Costanza, this is my George Costanza refrain in our home. I'm always like, two birds, baby, two birds, and I'm just... Really insistent that we think through our day and our actions in a way as to accomplish as many things as possible through as few actions as possible. Maybe it's laziness at the core. I don't know. But every culture has a version of this saying, two birds with one stone. Uh, The Polynesian, for for the vegans in the crowd, is one stone, two mangoes. So... uh, so the Germans, it's two flies with one swat. The Portuguese is two rabbits with one stick. The Chinese is two vultures with one arrow. The Italians is two pigeons with one fava bean. And the only one I couldn't find that I looked for was the French, and I think it's because they think that whole idea is just overly ambitious. Uh, that's for you, Larry. Uh, but you're one of the most two, two, two birds guys I know. But anyway... Okay, so, so, so PETA has really had a problem with the saying to, uh, to kill two birds with one stone, as you might imagine. And so they've come up with an alternative, which is to feed two birds with one scone. And that has, like, literally nothing to do with the idea, because at the end of that proposal, I have no birds or scones. Like, it's not, that's not the idea at all. So this is... Uh, this is a big deal to me. It's really how I just, just automatically think through my day and my actions. And uh, this, I, I want to be clear about something because I'm such a snob about this issue. This is not multitasking. Two birds with one stone is a different thing from multitasking. Multitasking is doing multiple things at one time. Not a fan of that. Two birds with one stone is getting two things done with one action. So there's a distinction there. And even if I, I thought about this uh, this week at a theological level, even if I wasn't a Christian, this value is so deeply embedded into my soul that I would be attracted to the gospel and to Christianity because of how latent this concept is within the practice of Christianity and within theology itself. So, for instance, I'm imagining the non-Christian me, still obsessed with the two birds thing, reading uh, Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's a classic two birds, baby, right there. Seek the kingdom, and all these other things will be added to you. If you think about it, that's basically... That's basically the rhythm of the promises in the Christian life. When God calls me to do something, I can assume that the thing he's calling me to do is good for me, good for others, and will lead to his glory. Three birds, one stone. Like, 
like the whole idea of Christianity is very interestingly laden with this idea that one action can carry about multiple positive effects. Now, it's, it's really, I think I'm not alone in at least feeling rather good about myself when I happen to kill two or three or ten birds with one stone. Uh, I think it's attractive because we do have this sense, just rooted deep down into our understanding of reality, that everything is overlapping in some sense. I was reading a little bit about uh, physics this week, and you know this whole idea of dimensionality, like you're occupying four dimensions at any given point, right? You're, you're in four different places in dimensional space, so fourth one being time and maybe the fifth being something else out there. So the idea is that you're, you're kind of one place, but you're really multiple places at the same time. This, this idea, this dream, that one truth could knock down all the dominoes in the universe. One idea could unlock everything. That's what Einstein spent his last 30 years of life looking for, was what he called a unified field theory, and now we kind of refer to as the theory of everything. And I really believe, because I'm interested in those things, but have a significant uh, pronounced leaning toward theology and, of course, the gospel, I really believe that that one truth that knocks down all the dominoes in the universe is Jesus. And I really believe that the one functional truth that unlocks everything else and accomplishes everything else is the truth of the gospel. God dying for us as us, taking us into his death, and into his resurrection. I think that's the unified theory of everything. So I think this two birds thing is really kind of so closely associated with what it means to be a Christian because Jesus is a prophet, a priest, and a king. That is, he is everything. And he is over everything. And he's the one thing that has to do with everything. So what does that have to do with Acts 2? We're still there, by the way. Well, last week, I challenged you, I think appropriately from God's word, to daily seek the face of the saints. That's a quote we see in early church writings. Uh, Seek daily the face of the saints. One of the early church documents says that you may be refreshed by their words. And I showed you in Acts 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 46, this idea that daily they gathered together. And I said, man, I, as a busy person, I kind of think, that's going to be tough. How, how practically can you accomplish this, this charge in the scriptures, not only that we see in Acts 2, but throughout the scriptures, this idea of daily concern for the saints? There's only so much day. There's only so much you can do in a day. And the commands that come forth from Acts 2 and elsewhere seem to be pretty clear, like we're supposed to seek the saints daily, but we're also supposed to, we're also supposed to be hard at work um, we're supposed to be pouring ourselves into our neighbors. We're supposed to be discipling our children if we have any of them. And we're supposed to care for our husband or our wife if you have one of those. And hopefully you only have one if you do. So how is it possible to do all of this in a single day? Well, technology gives you some additional options. And that was one of the things we were doing this morning as we were working through that base camp tutorial. But I'm not sure. Jury's still out. I love technology because it is such a two birds kind of thing, but I'm really not sure how helpful it will prove to be in our attendance to these daily duties. 
The jury's still out for me. But the thing is, is that when you look at the early church, you see them doing all these things. And so you think, well, it's possible. And there was a lot of power associated with their life and a lot of things I admire and want to see in my life. And so maybe I should look a little closer. Well, how did they get all of this done? Were they less busy? I mean, they didn't have T-ball, you know. So, so maybe there's a case to be made at some level. But the thing that we must never forget is that they actually worked harder than we did to earn their daily bread. We kind of uh, walk through our evaluation of our schedule with a post-industrial revolution lens, assuming that free time is more or less to be had and that you don't need 10 to 11 to 12 hours a day to gather in the calories you need just to live another day. But of course, back then, they didn't have the Industrial Revolution. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew 20 of a bunch of vineyard workers. And he talks, remember this parable? He talks about how different vineyard workers come in at different times of the day, and they all wind up getting paid the same thing. Well, the the overarching structure of that parable is an 11-hour workday. I mean, think about it from, from Ruth's perspective in the Old Testament. She uh, didn't have any land. She couldn't farm. But God had made a provision within the Old Testament law that if you were super poor and you didn't have any land to farm, you could go out and glean on the edges of the field. Now, she probably needed what? 2,000 calories a day not to die, not to starve to death. How many pieces of wheat do you have to pick up and grind into flour to replace the calories you just expended in the, in the day that you just worked? Think of how long and how many pieces of wheat you would have to pick up And what we're talking about right now is something that's a reality for many parts of the world still, and that is the idea of subsistence farming, which, of course, the early believers would have been a part of. In other words, they had to take most of their day to accumulate enough calories so that they could live another day. They weren't working less than us, folks, is the point. They were working more. Daylight for them was the workday. So I don't think... As we evaluate, how did they do all of these things? How did they engage wholeheartedly in loving their neighbor and loving their children and, and, and seeking out the saints? How did they do all of this? I don't think the answer is, well, they just had more free time than we did. I think they had less. So what is the answer? Well, I think it's in our text. So look at that, if you would, Acts 2, 46 through 47. And day by day. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. I think the answer is found in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. I believe that the one stone that kills so many birds, prescribed in the scriptures, pretty clearly, honestly, is that as Christians, we should see our homes and the hours that we have at home at the end of our day as primetime opportunities to engage in all the variety of opportunities the Lord has placed uh, in our lives. You see, your time at home at the end of a day can be tremendously, tremendously strategic and can be used to accomplish so much more than we often think. Uh, Meeting in homes in the New Testament was the norm. They didn't always have access to a temple or a synagogue. 
But they always had access to somebody's home, it seems. And so throughout the scriptures, you see all sorts of references to the believers spending lots of time together in their homes. In Acts 5.42, it's describing the activity of the apostles and says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease uh, teaching and preaching that, Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. You know, when Saul wanted to, to, to go out and, uh, and arrest a bunch of Christians in Acts chapter 8, we're told where he goes to find the Christians. He goes from home to home arresting Christians. So this, this, this early practice of much Christian time being focused on the home, it's a big deal. In all of the kind of pivotal moments where the mission gets expanded in the book of Acts, the home is, is really quite relevant. When Peter is about to meet Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, uh, before he even meets Cornelius, he's in the home of someone named Simon the Tanner. And he's there and he's in prayer and the Lord speaks to him through a vision. And throughout the story of Peter going to Cornelius' house, the word house is mentioned eight times. It's a pivotal thing in the story because what Peter does after he's at Simon the Tanner's house is he goes to Cornelius' house and there preaches the gospel and those people were saved. Uh, as we go through the New Testament, we see, for instance, one more thing in Acts. Peter, when he's released to prison, he goes to a house. He goes to uh, John Mark's mom's house. Uh, repeatedly in the epistles, you see references or greetings to houses, to churches that were in houses, Romans 16, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians 4, Philemon 2, repeated references to believers spending lots of time in homes and even churches taking place in homes. I think the home is Christianity 101. I think it's referenced even in the qualifications of a pastor in 1 Timothy 3, where he says that if a man can't manage his own household well, how can he manage the saints? How can he manage the church? Christianity is home 101. So we see this so prevalent in the early church, and it reminds me of uh, Proverbs twenty two twenty eight that says, do not remove the ancient boundary stones. Now, I think this is first and foremost an argument against taxes, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll save that for a later conversation. It's, it's, it's essentially an argument to honor a person's private property, that the ancient boundary stones were markers of personal property. But I think at a broader level, the argument is simply this, or that the commendation of that text is simply this. When your forefathers did something a particular way, don't be quick to discard that practice until you really understand why they did it that way. We have a modernistic bias that tends to assume that things people did 200 years ago were probably lame. Or at least had really dumb reasons for doing them. But maybe as we tread our way through the book of Acts, we see this home thing come up over and over again, and we see it over and over again in the New Testament in general, and even in the Old Testament when discipling children is prescribed in Deuteronomy 6, and it says, you know, as you're walking and as you're at home and so forth. This, this centrality of the home, and we want to be careful not to just throw that out and assume, well, that's just one way to do it. Because I honestly believe if we consider all that the Lord is calling us to do, to love our spouses, our children, our neighbors, and the saints, we need to have a very intentional strategy for how to do that, or else it ain't going to get done. And it seems like this home 
Christ-centered practice is not, um, is not peripheral to that, to that calling. This seems to be the kind of thing we need to be intentional in following their example. So uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this idea as we see in Acts 2.46 that they went uh, together, gathered frequently in homes. And let's think about this more in a detailed, practical way about how that could become a more consistent practice in our church, in our lives. So again, back to that text, I've got four questions that I want to know, I want to get answers to, and I think the text helps us to get there. And the four questions are, um, who should be in my home? Uh, what should be on my table? What should we talk about? And what should be in my heart? I'm going to answer those four questions this morning as it relates to this idea of hospitality. Last week, I referenced the, middle, the widow's might, and I said that for me, the widow's might is my time. I feel like there's always more demand than I have supply for, and so I have to give my time in faith, believing that God will care for me, even as I spend the little time I have investing that little time I have in him. And, and I, I want to be clear, that's not a suggestion that you give this, this last bit of your day to Christ and you spend the rest of the day on yourself. I don't think most of you do that. I think it's a struggle, but I think most of you, whether you're at home or whether you're working in the workplace, are trying to obey the scriptures there as well, not only to provide for your family, provide for the church and the missionaries that you support, but that you're also just trying to work as unto the Lord during that time, being sensitive to the coworkers that you work with. I believe that that, that time you spend at work is important and a function of the ministry of the church. But when you get home and you're tired after doing everything you did, there is a great temptation to see your home as your castle rather than as an outpost for the gospel in a foreign land. There's a great temptation to look at those, what is it, you know, four hours, something like that that you have before you go to bed and say, this is my time. This is me time. And friends, I get it because, you know, you're going to go to bed at 10 o'clock or whatever you go to bed. And then you're going to get up right the next morning and you're going to do the whole thing all over again. And it takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of faith to say those four hours when I get home from work, four or five hours, I want to deploy those for the sake of the kingdom. I want to pour those on the altar. And that's what I was saying last week about, man, sometimes the most precious things are the hardest to give, but also the most important. And those four or five hours after you're home, that's a time where you want to draw in. But I'm telling you, I don't think that's what God wants. I don't think God wants you to use that time in that way as a reflex or as a default. I think he wants you to deploy that time into useful ministry and worship. So the vision is, is that when you get home after a long day of work or after you've wrestled the children for, for all that time, um, the, the, the issue, the, the vision is, is that everything you need to do for your spouse, for your kids, for your, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for your neighbors, everything you need to do is compatible with a single action. You can kill four birds with one stone. And that single action is to sit down and have a meal with all sorts of people. People in your family, people outside your family, people in your church, people outside your church. This moment 
or you have the meal, or you break bread. That's the idea. Because, because the, thing, the, key, the key to accomplishing a lot of things in few actions is to find those things that everybody has to do, and one of them is eat. So the vision is, is that when you come home from work on a Tuesday, whatever, you have an open table with a vision for your neighbors, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and your own family sitting together. And that answers my first question, who should be in my home? Look again at the text of verse 47 of chapter 2 of Acts. It says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is one of those passages that reminds us there is really no competition between numerical growth and spiritual growth. There's no competition between conversions and sanctification. There's no competition between being in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ and being engaged with those that don't know Jesus. It's all one thing. The gospel that saves one person is the gospel that sanctifies another. And so this gospel is, as I said at the outset, the one stone. So that when you get together with an open table, and maybe you have a neighbor there that day, and also maybe a brother and sister from, G- from church, and you've got your kids there, you are doing a bunch of really good things at one time. And it's not like you have to do this every day. If you simply started to be intentional to say, you know, on the week that I don't have community group, I want us to have this as a default. I just want this to be on the calendar. So who should be in my home? Well, everybody that you're responsible to care for, maybe that will be an idea. You know, let's pick from the categories. I'm going to grab a couple Christians. I'm going to grab a couple non-Christians. I'm going to grab my kids. I'm going to grab my spouse, whoever else. And I'm going to have them all sit down together and we're going to have a meal. So what should be on my table? This is important. And you might think, well, goodness, Chris, like you're going to tell me what I should cook. Well, maybe, maybe I will. Maybe it will be delicious. I'm a good cook. Winston Churchill said that uh, perfection is the enemy of progress. And when it comes to hosting people in your home, I'm just wanting to make sure to push back because it's in the text, push back on all of the, uh, fantasy hospitality we see on on tv and instagram i want you to be clear that sometimes the fuss you make makes doing this unsustainable you're really not going to be able to do an amazing meal if your goal is to do a meal every week or to say it maybe the way that the oswalds work you're not going to be able to do an amazing meal if the goal is for people just to drop in and eat. That's just, that's more of a chicken and rice situation, right? Right? There are certain things we can make that could be stretched quite far, that can accommodate four people or eight people pretty quickly, and those things never get posted to Pinterest. One of the things we do is we go to Sam's and we buy these big steel uh, trays that you can, you can put a bunch of food in, and, and, and we just sort of put one of those in the freezer here and there so that it's always just sitting there. And it, it's chicken and rice. It's, it's the simplest of things. And we'll just have that sitting there so that when, when something comes up, we can, we can do that. I get this from the text because when it says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts, I, I, 
you know, I've, I've been asking this question and trying to understand, how do you receive something with a generous heart? That's, that's usually language described for someone that gives something. How do you receive something with a generous heart? And, you know, the word there for generous might be better translated simple. It's, it's, really, it's really the word that has the idea that there was just a simplicity to the gathering. Low expectations. No one was expecting the, the culinary event of their life. Right? They were just gathering together because they had to eat and they might as well do it together. So who should, be at, who should be at my table? Well, lots of different people. What should be on my table? Something simple that you can repeat over and over and over again that you can stretch so that you don't have to have a finite number of people. Or you don't have to have an RSVP even necessarily. Something that you can just put out and it's there. A big pot of soup, for instance. You know, the trick with soup right? It's cheap and you can make a huge pot of it. And then you can go over to Black Dog and buy a really nice piece of bread and everybody thinks they're, you know, they're, they're being gourmet. <laughs> it's always the bread. That's the key. Every family would do well to think through how they could create a dish for their family that's sort of the go-to dish. A handful of meals that are easily made and easily extended from a variety of numbers that could be at that table, easily stored for later, and so on and so forth. Simplicity is really a big deal when you're asking, well, what should be on my table? Make it simple. You're also doing something amazing for your neighbors and for your fellow church members, and that you're communicating vulnerability and saying, I'm not trying to impress you. And you're creating a new culture, maybe even in your neighborhood. You know, some neighborhoods just get silly with the way they try to outdo each other whenever they have meals or barbecues or so forth. And, you know, this is difficult. And it's difficult. It ruins a whole day for families routinely when they're having guests because there are so many things they've got to accomplish. But what if you just started going countercultural and you started just dropping down a, a, a big aluminum tray of chicken and rice and said, I'm here for you not to wow you with my food. And, uh, and you started creating a new kind of expectation and a new modeled a new way of doing hospitality in your neighborhood. Number three, what should we talk about? How many of you have ever gotten an Amway pitch? I must be what 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 iron is to magnets, I am to Amway pitchers. Like I get, I've had the Amway pitch multiple times, and uh, and this is very uncomfortable to to be brought into someone's home thinking you're going to have a meal, and then you you walk in and there's a whiteboard. By the, by the table, like, this does not look good, you know. Um, and, 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 and as I'm eating, the diagram of residual income is being placed up on, the, up on the whiteboard. You know, sometimes I think you're afraid, we can be afraid to offer hospitality to those who don't know Jesus because we think we've got to have some kind of pitch ready, that we've got to have this sort of finite gospel presentation ready. And it, it's sort of like, well, I don't even know how that would work. And that doesn't really seem to be the same as just enjoying a meal with someone. But let me give you two suggestions. First of all, listening is the act of hospitality. Listening is the act of hospitality. If you want to really welcome someone into your life, listen to them. People don't get listened to very often. So it's, it's one of the things you could talk about is them. You could simply listen. 
You could simply be interested. And by the way, everybody's interesting. Every, they, some people might need help, but they're, they're interesting. <laughs> so what should I talk about? Well, one thing you should talk about is you should just extend hospitality all the way to the level where you're actually giving hospitality in the most busy and cluttered place in the universe, and that is your attention span. Listen, ask questions, let them do most of the talking. Everybody's got a story to tell. And the way this ties into the text is interesting because when it says they received their food um, with glad and generous hearts and they were praising God, you know, praising God looks different in different moments. Sometimes it's extraordinarily vertical like it was this morning during worship. But you know what else is praising God? When you listen to another human being share their story. And in brief interludes, you suggest that God may have been at work in this or that way, and not in a preachy way, but simply to say, wow, God's really blessed you with like great gifts in money management. Like you're really good at this. So what I'm talking about now is something I talked about all summer, and that is the practice of affirmation. When you can learn to reflexively affirm the good things that are evident in someone's life, what you're doing ultimately is you're giving praise to the God who put them there because we know, as Paul says, nothing good lives in me, right? God's actively at work in everybody's life. And he's at work in those people who don't even know Jesus. Romans 1 tells us that God is showering his gifts on creation, on everybody, Every person is, is, is experiencing the generosity of God. So one way, one conversation topic that's simply natural and, and doesn't need to be forced whatsoever is simply to affirm the good things that you see happening in someone else's life. Are there plenty of bad things happening in their life? Is there plenty of sin? Of course there is. Sam Crabtree wrote in a book called Practicing Affirmation, God-Centered Praise of Those Who Are Not God. He wrote, God is glorified in us when we affirm the work he has done and is doing in others. And God is always working in every life. So what should we talk about? Listen. And when you see things that are praiseworthy and commendable, commend them. Praise them. That is not at all the same as flattery. Because first of all, it's God-directed. Hopefully, many times, it's God-directed intentionally, like verbally, like you say, well, praise God for that or something like something to that respect. But even when you affirm a good thing, you're affirming a certain moral universe. You're affirming a set of values that God himself placed into the world. So that for instance, when Paul is uh, sort of reverse hospitality in, in Acts 17, he comes into a group of people's world. He affirms them for what he can affirm them on. And then, because he's very skilled, is able to shift from there to the gospel. But I want to challenge you just to have this simple idea. I want to have all sorts of different people at my table. I want to have really simple food at my table. And I want to be mostly about the act of listening and affirming what I can in the lives of other people. The fourth thing is uh, what should be in my heart. What should be in my heart? You know, there are a lot of negative things that go through your heart and mind when you're practicing hospitality. I don't even need to ask how many of you have had a fight before you've had friends over for dinner. 
There are all sorts of negative things going on in your heart and mind right before you bring someone over. And a lot of it has to do with shame and embarrassment or hassle. And this is all compounded when you're physically tired and mentally tired. So you need a proactive plan, not simply to not be shamed or embarrassed or fearful, but what should you be feeling? What should be in your heart when you do this thing that I know you're all going to go do right after the sermon? Well, look at the word glad in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. This is joy. This is a, a Greek word, agilasis, and it's the word for joy, extreme delight, transcendent gladness. And here's the interesting thing about that word. is like when it appears in the New Testament, it, it refers to people having joy when they come into the presence of something. So I want to give you a word picture from the early part of Luke, Luke chapter 1 that I think encompasses the whole thing about what's supposed to be in your heart uh, when, when people come over. Back in Luke 1, uh, Mary's pregnant, and she goes to spend time with Elizabeth, who's also pregnant with John the Baptist. And when she walks into the home, Elizabeth says this, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And that leap for joy is the same word we see in Acts 2.46, gladness. The idea seems to be that in some mysterious way, baby John was leaping for joy to be in the presence of baby Jesus. So I believe that passage, specifically the word uh, for joy there, is the attitudinal plumb line for what you should want to feel in your heart when someone comes in your door. When people into our homes, enter into our homes, whether they are believers or unbelievers, we are to thank, we are to seek to cultivate in our heart the feeling that we are being in a representation of Christ, of Christ's presence. That's what we should be feeling. We should be feeling glad because Jesus has come to dinner. This is exactly what Jesus teaches. In Matthew 10, 40, he says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous reward. And he says this, And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus is saying that those who welcome his people into their homes are welcoming Jesus himself. So what should you feel when that brother or sister in Christ walks into your house? You should feel like Jesus is here and you get a chance to enjoy his presence. Later on in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of those who are not believers. And he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. So this is the believer saying, "Uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, as you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So what's the heart we should cultivate when we have people enter our home? The heart is, is I have the privilege right now of expressing my love for Jesus by loving this person who's about to sit down to some chicken and rice. I have the privilege of being in the presence of someone whom Jesus tells me I should deeply value and care for. So you get home. This has been on the calendar. You don't even know who's going to show up necessarily. You've got some RSVPs. Others may drop in. You're tired. But why were you at work all day anyway? Well, one of the reasons why you were at work all day was to pay for this home and to pay for this food. Engaging in intentional hospitality is an essential part of reinforcing the kind of work ethic the Bible commands. Because you need to see payoffs for your work. And one of the payoffs is to realize, God, you know, all day today when I was jumbling spreadsheets and dealing with this or that thing, I was earning money that made this home possible and this food possible. And now, Lord, you've allowed me to serve you directly with it by having people into my home and by engaging in the kind of hospitality you frequently commend. So who should be in my home? Everybody, really. Um, What should be on my table? Make it simple. Make it repeatable. I want to add one more point here. Uh, Sometimes in well-meaning efforts to have a meal together, you wind up delaying conversations or meetings that could have just happened with coffee or something much simpler. So don't get hung up on the need always to equate hospitality with a meal. I think normally that's a good practice and that's a good thing to seek, but don't get hung up on a meal. Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water to one of these, you're giving it unto me. I dare you to do that, by the way. Invite someone over for a cup of water. (laughs) Don't do that. So everybody should be my home. I should, I I have all these, all these opportunities to love people in different categories and different places spiritually. And I, I can actually kill all those birds with one stone, but just by getting them around the table, um, I should make the food simple because I need it to be sustainable. And uh, I should, I should enforce this, 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 I should pursue a conversational tone that is mainly aimed at listening and affirming that which can be affirmed. And then what should be in my heart? What should be in my heart is gladness. The kind of, uh, uh, in utero backflip that I imagine John doing when Jesus walked in the room. The celebration that I get an opportunity after all this day has brought to get down to the central thing. And that is to celebrate what God has done in my life by sharing it with others. The goal is to have the heart of John leap because we see the person of Jesus enter. I want to leave you with an old Celtic saying, and I think it wraps all of this up perfectly. 
It may even be one of these things that you might want to write down, put on your fridge. It says, if thou wouldst have thy share of heaven on earth, lift the latch and let in the king of kings. If thou wouldst have thy share of heaven on earth. If you want to experience the kingdom and all that God is doing in the kingdom, lift the latch, open the door, and let in the king of kings. For Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And he says, if you offer even one of mine a cup of water, you've offered it unto me. And he says that if you've welcomed a stranger, you've welcomed me. Let me pray.